Well, you'll be glad to know we're starting a new chapter today. John chapter 20 this morning. And now we will begin to consider the events surrounding Christ's resurrection. John chapter 20 this morning. We're going to begin by reading verses 1 through 10. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark, unto the sepulcher, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. Then she runneth, and cometh to Simon Peter, and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and saith unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher, and we know not where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth, and that other disciple, and came to the sepulcher. So they ran both together. And the other disciple did outrun Peter, and came first to the sepulcher. And he stooping down, and looking, looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. Then cometh Simon Peter following him, and went into the sepulcher, and seeth the linen clothes lie. And the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Then went in also that other disciple, which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed. For as yet they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again unto their own home. Well, as we studied last week, Jesus is now officially dead. I tried to explain that medically through the proof of the blood in the water. That for blood and then water to come out, he had been dead for sometime at least because the red blood cells had separated from the water-filled plasma. And test tube sedimentation blood test, typically about an hour it takes for that to happen. So I suspect Jesus had probably been dead for about an hour when the Roman soldier pierced his side. And now understand the Romans were experts at making sure people were dead before they took them off the cross. This is what they did. And they made sure that they completed the sentence of their execution. And so they knew what they were doing. And you can bet that the religious Jews who were wanting Jesus on the cross were standing there making sure Jesus is dead before He comes off the cross and is put in the grave. And we saw last week that after they made sure Jesus was dead, Joseph of Arimathea went in unto Pilate to request the body of Jesus for burial. And just for the record, in Mark chapter 15, it says that Pilate made sure Jesus was dead before he gave them the body. So there's a lot of verifications here is what I'm saying. Jesus is dead. And then Joseph and Nicodemus, they anointed the body of Jesus with a mixture of aloes and myrrhs and put him into the grave, wrapping him in linen clothes. And now with Jesus in the grave... By the way, this will be a little bit of a different message today. I'm not going to do a whole lot of preaching. I'm just going to give you some facts. Amen. So if you're tired, you can fall asleep today. It's permitted today only. Amen. It's a one-time event. Um, of course, you know my rule. If you're over 70, you're allowed to sleep anytime you want. But below that, we reserve the right to come and thump you on the head. So, Karen, you work this morning. Go ahead, sis. You can, you can zonk out. And so now with Jesus in the grave, we see in verse 1 that Mary Magdalene heads towards the sepulcher before the light dawns upon the first day of the week. And according to Matthew and Mark's account, by the time she arrived at the tomb, the sun is just beginning to rise and it's beginning to become daylight. 
And in Mark, we learn that Mary Magdalene is not alone. Along with her is the other Mary, the mother of James the Less. And also Salome is mentioned, who is the mother of James and John. Mark and Luke give the reason why they were coming to the place where Jesus was buried. And it was so that they could anoint the body of Jesus with sweet spices. It was tradition in those days to do so after a period of time um, so that when people would come, if they chose to come and visit and pay their last respects, there would be a pleasant aroma, amen, coming from the tomb. In Mark's account, as they're about to approach the sepulcher, and this just cracks me up for some reason, but here they are walking, it's, it's dark, and as they're coming to the sepulcher, the sun's beginning to come up, and as they're about to approach the tomb, they say among themselves, by the way, Who's going to roll the stone away for us? <laughs> it just makes me wonder what they were thinking when they left, amen? I mean, <laughs> might want to thought of that, you know, thought about that before you left. And obviously it's something they couldn't have done on their own, uh, being very heavy item. And well, it makes me pause and think, where's the men? I'll tell you where they're at. They're in hiding out of fear of the Jews. And so once again, we see it's the women who are ex- exhibiting more courage than the men. In addition to being unable to roll the stone away upon their arrival, they obviously weren't aware, by no fault of their own, but they were not aware of what had taken place the day following Jesus' burial. And this is going to be very important for us to know this morning, so listen closely. In Matthew 27, verses 62 through 66, it says, Now the next day that followed the day of the preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees came together unto Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember that... That deceiver said, while he was yet alive, After three days I'll rise again. Command therefore that the sepulcher be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away, and say unto the people, He's risen from the dead. So the last error shall be worse than the first. Pilate said unto them, You have a watch, go your way, make it as sure as you can. So they went and made the sepulcher sure, sealing the stone, and setting a watch. Now, it's very important that we know these details. Because the Jews knew that Jesus had said, I'm going to rise again the third day, they suspect Jesus' followers are going to come along and steal the body and tell everybody, He rose again. And since they're so bent on trying to prove that Jesus is a deceiver, They're afraid of the bad publicity that's going to result if rumors begin to spread that this man has risen from the dead. And so to prevent that, they want to be sure his body isn't going to disappear. So they seal the stone of the sepulcher and they place guards to keep watch. And just for those who may not know know this, the sepulcher was hewn out of stone, meaning it was basically a cave. There's one way in, there's one way out. There's no way to find a back door in and steal the body or anything like that, so they just have to protect this one entrance. And because Joseph was a rich man, he could afford the nicer sepulchers with the rolling stones that went in front of the door. Most people could only afford one that had more of a cork-like stone that they would push into place. But this is actually a very fancy sepulcher that they have here because Joseph had the money to purchase it. And they they roll that into place to close the entrance to the tomb. Now, we don't know for sure how the tomb was sealed, but don't think of like they took 
you know, something and, and actually go around the entire circumference of this wheel of a stone or something like that. Um, to seal the, the tomb, that is talking about a signet, a seal that you would make with a signet. And so what they believe they probably did is had a cord stretched out across the entire width of the stone and on both sides attached it to there with wax and on the wax made the seal, the signet. Knowing that if that was disturbed, they would know right away the cords dropped. Somebody has been messing around in the tomb and they could tell even from a distance as they want to. But of course, they got the guards stationed there as well. And so that's probably what it means. But we get an idea from Daniel what it, what it was like. Because Daniel 6.17 says, When Daniel is cast into the den of lions, it says, And a stone was brought and laid upon the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that the purpose might not be changed concerning Daniel. And so it would have been easily known if somebody had tampered with the, the tomb. And then, as I was mentioning already, as in addition to sealing the tomb, they placed a watch of soldiers, a guard of soldiers. We don't know how many this was, but they would have had some Roman soldiers available to them, and they would have placed them at the entering here of the tomb. So, everything's been done in order to prevent anybody taking the body of Jesus out of the tomb. And understand, it's the religious Jews who oversaw this process. They're the ones that wanted him dead. They're the ones that testified against him. And of course, um, when he's on the cross and all this kind of stuff, they're watching, they're verifying this. And they're the ones that are going to seal the tomb. They're the ones that are placing the watch. And you can bet, I'm saying that to say this, you can bet that before they seal the tomb, before they place the guards, they would have looked in there to be sure that the man that they're trying to keep from being taken out of the tomb was in there. This is important as we go through the message. And so they knew that he was in that grave, and they had those soldiers there 24-7. So to summarize what I've covered so far, the religious Jews have sealed the tomb. They have set the Roman guards in place to prevent it from being messed with. The women have come to the graveside to pay their last respects, and the disciples are in hiding out of fear of the Jews. So what are we to ascertain from all of these facts? Well, it's this. No one, no one was looking for the resurrection. Not His followers, not His enemies. Nobody's expecting this. There was a day when the scribes and Pharisees came to Jesus and said, Master, we would see a sign from Thee. But Jesus answered them in Matthew 12, 39 and 40, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Well, for some that might be a little cryptic. But Jesus was absolutely clear to His disciples. He says, I'm reading Mark's account. He says there in Mark 10, verses 33 and 34, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be delivered unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn Him to death, and shall deliver Him to the Gentiles. And they shall mock Him, and shall scourge Him, and shall spit upon Him, and shall kill Him. And the third day He shall rise again. 
This was no secret. Jesus wasn't hiding his message. It was understood that this is what he had been saying. And this just amazes me that nobody's expecting it, even though Jesus never hid the fact that he was going to. How doubtful we get of God's word sometimes. And listen, the message was well known enough that the religious Jews go into Pilate, who's a Gentile, and say, you know what that deceiver said? By golly, he said he was going to rise again. I mean, they knew the message. Therefore, when these ladies are heading for the tomb while it's dark, they're not trying to get there early to get good seats at the first sunrise service. Oh no. They believe it's all over. There's no anticipation of resurrection. And as far as Jesus' followers are concerned, all of this had ended terribly. They spent three and a half years following this man that they believed was the Messiah, that he was going to restore the kingdom to Israel. And now it appears with Jesus in the grave that he was nothing more than a fraud. And because no one's thinking of a resurrection, as these ladies are approaching, hey, who's going to roll the stone away? But we see at the end of verse 1 that when they arrived, the stone had already been taken away. Whoop. But even upon seeing the stone rolled away, they still don't click. It still, it still doesn't hit their mind that, oh, maybe he rose again. No, the initial reaction is, somebody has stole Jesus. They've come by night. They've taken him away. We, we don't know where he's at. And so uh, upon... Upon this, Mary runs to Peter and John and says in verse 2, they've taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher and we know not where they have laid Him. Now, if you analyze what she says, she's saying this. Not only is He nowhere to be found, but I believe He's still dead because where did they lay Him? There's still no thought of resurrection. And just interesting here that she says they have taken the Lord. Well, I've wondered, who is she talking about? Who's they? But we do that a lot, don't we? Listen, I was a meteorologist for 21 years, and that's how they treat you. Right? Well, you know what they said? They said it was going to snow. I'm they. Well, she goes, we don't know where they've taken them. Well, it couldn't have been the enemies of Christ. I mean, listen... The chief priests, if that's who's on her mind, they were glad he was in the grave. They sealed it. They put the watch there. They would have been happy that he was in the grave. And so if Jesus' body had been stolen, as Mary suspected, and as the Jews had feared might happen, then we know it could not have been any of Jesus' enemies. Because if it were his enemies, the easiest way to stop any rumors that Jesus had risen again and to put an end to all this nonsense would be to produce the dead body of Jesus Christ. And that's the end of Christianity right there. Well, whoever she had in mind, when she said they, she's not thinking resurrection. She suspects foul play. And perhaps they didn't want them to pay their respects. <laughs> and so instead of recognizing a heavenly demonstration of God's power, she is seeking for an earthly explanation. 
And isn't that the downfall of so many today? I'm not having any faith till I see it. Well, Mary runs. She tells the disciples that Jesus isn't there. Then in verses 3 and 4, Peter and John take off running to the sepulcher together. I love to try to picture this because you know men kind of had those robes and they'd gird up their loins. Basically look like a giant diaper you're wearing running down the... (laughs) And so they take off running. But let me just give you a short side note here. Uh, Isn't it wonderful to see these two men back together. Remember, Peter, he had denied his Lord three times and he went out and wept bitterly. He disappears from the scene. John had come back to the cross, but we don't find Peter again until right now. But here they are back together again. John had been honored by Christ to take care of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Peter had been disgraced in his denial of Jesus while John had been blessed for his faithfulness. But here they are, They're together again. And I just want to point this out real quick, but John never gave up on Peter. Isn't that terrific? He didn't turn his back on him, but he stays with Peter and he welcomes him right back in, even after Peter had denied the Lord and no doubt disappointed a lot of people. And listen, people are going to disappoint you in this life. But we got to learn from this example and just welcome back in and keep running together. Anyway, it's a wonderful picture. It's another message for another time. You know, and I'm just curious, as you read this account, does anybody else kind of chuckle a little bit that it mentions how John outran Peter? I mean, why are we told this? We took off running for the sepulcher, and that disciple who Jesus loved, he outran Peter. You know, to me, it kind of sounds like a little bit of biblical smack talk, Amen. Yeah, we ran. I beat him. (laughs) As I got to thinking about this, I I love smack talk. Amen, Breck. I mean, competitive people, you know, we talk smack. And and so I love it. I wish people could do more of it today, but everybody's a bunch of pansies now. And we don't want to we don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. But you know, I got to thinking there's there's a wonderful billboard right over here somewhere. Wherever I'm facing. And uh it is the best smack talk billboard you'll find in the city. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? So over there, if you come like we do to church, we come uh, south off the interstate to go down Haynes Avenue. And right there is Shopco and Freed's Flooring. Well, Freed's Flooring right there, if you look, there's a billboard almost right in their parking lot. And the billboard is by Black Hills Flooring. <laughs> but listen to what it says. I jotted this down. Thank you for voting us best flooring in the Black Hills. <laughs> Boom. That's how you smack talk, amen. You put a billboard right in their face and say, we're number one. Now, I know the the Bible is Holy Ghost inspired, but, you know, still it kind of makes me chuckle. Yeah, we ran together, but I outran them. Well, anyway, in verse 5, John, having arrived first, he stoops down and he looks into the tomb. And he sees the linen clothes lying, but he doesn't go in. Well, not to be outdone by John's fast running, Peter shows up next, and what does he do in, what is this, verse 6? He goes right in. Well, this makes perfect sense, because we know Peter is the most bold of the disciples. And so he just goes right into the tomb, and 
he sees just a little bit more detail. He, he not only sees the, the linen clothes lying there, but he sees that um, they're lying there nice and neat and that the napkin, which would have been some sort of a head wrap, maybe like a handkerchief or something like that, um, it's lying separate from the linen clothes. Then in verse 8, we learn that after Peter had gone in, John, now being encouraged by Peter's boldness, he steps in as well. And what does it say at the end of verse 8? He saw and believed. Now, what exactly he believed is debated by some. Did he see and believe the report from the women that Jesus had been taken? Or did he see and believe that Jesus had resurrected? Verse 9 says, For as yet they knew not the Scripture that He must rise again from the dead. So does this mean at this moment they still didn't know the Scriptures after seeing all of this? Or does this mean John now believed, but he's admitting that he didn't understand it all beforehand? Well, we know for sure Peter wasn't convinced yet because Luke 24, 12 tells us that after Peter being at the sepulcher, he departed, wandering in himself at that which has come to pass. And so for John, you can chew on that in your own. You can come to your own conclusions. And like I said, I know I'm not really preaching today, but these facts that are given for us here in the Bible, they're meant to convince the reader that Jesus did come out of the grave and is alive. You see, when we read the Bible, we're not just to read it as a novel, as some form of entertainment. We're not just to read the Bible and have an emotional experience, although that does happen. But we're to read the Bible and examine it. Study the facts. Do some investigation and see, is this true? And so as we look at these facts, what I know is this. Those who were doubtful then in that day and those who are doubtful in our day, are overlooking the obvious answer which proves why the tomb was empty. And if you happen to be a skeptic this morning, don't miss this. But little did the Jews know, but the safeguards they had put in place in sealing the tomb and stationing the guards in front of the tomb was only going to further verify that Jesus had resurrected. All of their efforts to prevent Jesus from coming out of the grave only more clearly reveal that He had in fact resurrected. And it was God who orchestrated these safeguards over Jesus' grave in such a way that there could be no accusation of any kind of trickery whatsoever. Isn't the wisdom of God amazing? Listen, I want to tell you this morning, God destroys the wisdom of the wise. Say, man, there's a lot of crazy stuff going on today. There sure is. But we don't have to be concerned. You know why? Because God's in control. He's going to confound the wisdom of the wise. And listen to what Job 5.13 says. He taketh the wise in their own craftiness, and the counsel of the fraud is carried headlong. Jesus' enemies had taken every precaution to ensure His resurrection was beyond the possibility of any suspicion of fraud or deception. And yet their actions actually ended up providing the undeniable proof that Jesus' resurrection was a reality. In fact, some of the soldiers who were there that that morning, they have to go and tell the chief priests, look, this is what happened. 
they actually go in and give testimony of, of what took place. But of course, the chief priests, if you know the story, the elders there, in an, in an attempt to do some damage control, they give the soldiers a large sum of money. And they say to them, just say this, His disciples came by night and stole Him away while y'all were sleeping. Well, that's dangerous to say because you can get killed if you were sleeping on your watch. So the elders tell the soldiers, you know what, don't worry. If this comes into the governor's ears, I got your back. I'll smooth it over. They're like, okay, good. Give us the money. And so that's the lie that was told. What really happened is recorded in Matthew 28, 2 through 4. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. And his countenance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. (laughs) I love picturing this. I don't know how many were there, but you know, here's the stone rolling and, and they're just laying there. They're like dead men. Isn't that, isn't that funny to picture? And, and listen, just a quick observation here. The stone wasn't rolled away so Jesus could get out. It was rolled away so that they could get in. Now, by the chief priest telling these soldiers to lie, it further, uh, it's a further ver- verification that they didn't know what had happened to Jesus' body. And so they say, you know what, let's put the blame on the disciples because they're the ones that are going to want to try to say it was a resurrection. But this is why we are given the detail that the linen Jesus was buried in is lying there neatly. Why would grave robbers unwrap the body and then fold it all up nice and neat? I think a better question is this. Why would anybody unwrap a dead body? Also telling is that Jesus was wrapped in fine linen. Mark 15.46 says, And he, speaking of Joseph brought fine linen and took him down and wrapped him in the linen and laid him in a sepulcher which was hewn out of a rock and rolled a stone unto the door of the sepulcher. You see, it wasn't unheard of for grave robbers to steal the grave clothes. But as you can imagine, they didn't steal the bodies. But they would steal the clothes because linen was a big deal in those days. I mean, what do we find the soldiers doing as Jesus is on the cross? They're going to cut up garments and gamble. They're going to split that stuff among themselves because, look, everybody wants a piece of the pie. And so if Jesus, if they're going to run with this lie that Jesus' body was stolen, why in the world are the grave clothes there all nice and neat? Another note on the, on the linen lying there. When Jesus raised Lazarus for, from the dead, He came out still wrapped up. Which again, is funny to picture, right? It's, and He comes out of the grave, they unwrap Him. Why did he come out with the grave clothes on? Because he was going to need them again. Jesus is laying there. Why? Because he died once. Never to die again. Hey, that's a take a lap statement. The Bible says in Romans 6, 9, and 10, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. And finally, put this under the thoughts to ponder file. If Christianity is all a fabrication and Jesus didn't really resurrect from the grave, then why would the gospel penmen choose women as their foundational witnesses? And ladies, I'm not being ugly, but you have to put yourself in that culture in that day. 
if you're going to invent a religion and this was all manufactured and fabricated, then you wouldn't use women because at that time they didn't have the status for this kind of thing. So when you read in every gospel account that it is the women who made the discovery, it is the women who are making the report to the men of what took place, and it is the women that Jesus first appears to, you're meant to step back understanding that culture in that day, and you're, you're meant to go, huh? Because female testimonies in that day were at best suspect, if not irrelevant. You don't have to act like I'm against women, okay? Everybody can line up. I mean, we're talking 2,000 years ago, okay? We're all friends. I'm simply saying if this were all made up, this is not how one would start a religion in those days in that part of the world. But I want you to also consider what did the men have to gain when they finally were bold enough to testify of the resurrection of Christ? And I ask you that in light of we're examining the facts. What did they have to gain by saying, yep, Jesus rose from the dead and and we've seen Him, He's alive. What did they actually get as a result? And listen, when a person's testimony doesn't help them, it further validates the authenticity of their testimony. And so when they say, yeah, we saw Him, what were they getting in return? Scorn, slander, beatings, imprisonments, death, you got to weigh all this out when you're considering the resurrection. And remember, they didn't expect a resurrection to begin with. Why would they invent one? You know, they weren't sitting around drinking coffee that morning going, man, it's going to be awesome Easter morning. I can't wait to see Jesus come out of that grave. No, nobody's thinking this. They're hiding out of fear. I heard this quote from a message. Men may be prepared to die for a conviction, but they are not going to die for a concoction. If you're going to lay down your life for something, then you're going to be convinced of it. And we know, as we'll see through the rest of this chapter, that it was the resurrection that lit a fire under them to be so bold after hiding in fear. So, when one deals honestly with the facts, the conclusion is straightforward. Jesus rose again. But why do people believe the lies then? Because listen, I can tell you that Christianity would have died out by now. Why do people believe the lies? Well, I can tell you people reach for any other explanation than the obvious because it will relieve them of the responsibility of having to deal with the reality of God. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Because we're going to bring this home to your kitchen table. People reach for other things because they don't want to deal with reality. And if people can convince themselves that Jesus did not rise again, then it means Christ is not who He said He was. It means that this Bible is a lie. And it means that you are not going to give an account to God one day. With no God, there's no accountability. Aldous Huxley, an English writer and philosopher who was also an atheist, wrote in his book of essays entitled Ends and Means, an Inquiry into the Nature of Ideals. He wrote this, I had motives for not wanting the world to have meaning. For myself, as no doubt for most of my friends, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain system of Christian morality. We objected to that morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. End quote. 
You see, when one determines there is no God to whom they are accountable to, then one can do whatever they please. And in order to say there is no God, after a true examination of the Scriptures, one must deny the obvious. And part of the obvious is we're still here. Whoop! We're meeting for church today. We're either a bunch of bumbling idiots or Jesus rose again. You would think that out of all the cultures down through the last 2,000 years that absolutely detest Christ, that it wouldn't have survived. And yet, today, all around the world, churches are meeting. They're meeting in Buddhist countries, Hindu countries, communist countries, socialist countries. Countries like ours that don't know where we're heading. He's still being preached. Man, that proves it to me. And listen to further prove it, which we're going to get into later. Uh, Not today. Everybody chill. Not only that, in those countries where there's persecution, we find in the Bible, it spreads even further. How is it that a Galilean carpenter, born in the little town of Bethlehem, raised in the know-nothing town of Nazareth, still causing all this controversy nearly 2,000 years ago. It makes you pause and think. How is this happening? Because the resurrection did occur. Jesus is alive. The facts are undeniable. And I'll tell you in closing, He's seated at the right hand of God. He is highly exalted and has been given a name which is above every name. Whether you believe the facts or not, one day, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Let's pray.